So we have a full day planned for you with time for questions, discussions, and networking. Each session today will focus on the letters of the acronym IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Anti-Racism. Music NL has partnered with us to arrange two performances by newcomers, musicians, one during lunch break and the other one um, prior to the start of the award ceremony. So Jim Murphy, the Director of Language Services from the Association for New Canadians, will get us starting with greetings from the executive team and board for the Association for New Canadians. Morning, everyone. Bonjour. Salam. Salam alaikum. Uh, thank you, Barb, for the introduction. Uh, my name is Jim Murphy. As Barb has mentioned, I'd like to welcome you all here today. I'm the Director of Language Services for the Association for New Canadians. Uh, for over 40 years now, the Association has been delivering a wide array of resettlement, settlement, language, employment, and public education programming designed to assist newcomers from the point of arrival through to citizenship. This is like the new earrings, eh? We have these things happening. I'm just going to remove my earring for the time being. At this time, I would like to acknowledge and welcome uh, the Honorable Jerry Byrne, uh, Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth and Skills, and his staff as well, to today's event. I would also like to extend warm greetings to all invited guests, community partners, and to those of you who are joining us online today, welcome. I also want to recognize and extend sincere gratefulness to the funders and sponsors who made this event possible. The Office of Immigration and Multiculturalism, Department of Immigration, uh, Population Growth and Skills, Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency, Canadian Heritage, Rogers TV, the Newfoundland Liquor Corporation, Hospitality Newfoundland and Labrador, RBC, McGinnis Cooper, and Team Grow NL, and any other groups I may not have mentioned who are also sponsoring this event. The association sincerely appreciates the continued support, and particularly the support to its business diversity initiative. Many thanks as well to the staff and the team members who organized this day. It looks, fa looks fantastic. Today's event entitled Ideas, Where Theory Meets Practice, is being hosted to highlight the positive impact of welcoming immigrants and diversity to the Newfoundland and Labrador workforce. Sessions today will also feature the many resources that are available to you in your challenges as we incorporate inclusion, equity, and anti-racism in, into our workplace cultures. Today, you will hear a number of highly engaging speakers and panelists whose vision, knowledge, and experience will help shape our perspectives on the importance of diversity in Newfoundland and Labrador. So please sit back and enjoy and, and be engaged in today's event. Thank you so much. Next, I'd like to welcome Honorable Jerry Byrne, Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth and Skills, to the stage to say a few words. Premier Fury and Minister Byrne have taken many actions to advance immigration, diversity, and anti-racism work in the province in the last year. This, these include uh, tripling the current target to welcome in 5,100 newcomers annually by 2026. Establishing a ministerial committee on anti-racism, doubling the staff of our Immigration and Multiculturalism Office, and establishing the new Priority Skills Immigration Pathway, just to name a few. 
thanks for giving me the honor of helping to open what I think is a particularly poignant and important summit. This is a gathering that would bring the ideas of inclusion, diversity, equity, and anti-racism into everyday practice within everyday life of Newfoundland and Labrador. It's very timely. The fact that this year the summits of ideas has grown to the point where we're in registered maximum capacity, while in an even bigger room, all while being taken in by an even larger live stream audience, this means something. The people behind ideas have always been big. Any interest in being part of something bigger than ourselves and larger than our neighborhood or our communities or our province or even our country has always been big. But the sheer number of voices from so many backgrounds, experiences, and perspectives working in collaboration on our theme of ideas means that something big is working. And with that, I cannot help but think about the community of big thinkers from years ago within our province who, when the room was smaller, arguably at the time, and the task may have been somewhat lonelier, but when the dream was still large enough to fill an ocean's horizon, adopted a pragmatic but never apologetic approach to the effort of bringing us to this day. Those fearless early pioneers of inclusion, diversity, and equity who deserve to be recognized with admiration and respect. And yes, I think it is true, progress is being made, and it's important to celebrate that. As we look back at recent weeks, I look back at the early morning arrival of dozens of former Afghan refugees to St. John's, and I look back with a personal sense of optimism in our shared future that comes from the outpouring of empathy, of respect, and support that the people of Newfoundland and Labrador rushed rushed in with to fill a void. A void created by uncertainty, by fear and apprehension. A void that would follow any human being who lived and struggled for years in a war-torn country and who just spent months in a refugee camp wondering how long they would remain stateless and without a future for themselves or their families. And then one day, after too many days of despair, that void was filled with the idea of inclusion, diversity, and equity. This was the practice of humanity in its best form, and it happened here in St. John's. The idea that strangers could rally to strangers, the idea that inclusion, diversity, equity, racial respect and awareness were on display in its best form here in Newfoundland and Labrador in those early days with the arrival of 116 former Afghan refugees should give us all hope that this will become the norm. The expected outcome to all events and to all situations where people suffer. But while we should rightfully absorb and celebrate the power of kindness that, was, that we all saw on display in those early days, we should not be too self-congratulatory or complacent. Too often, we still see the impact of systemic racism, exclusion, and see that the less than enlightened expectations of assimilation 
are in direct competition with the bigger ideas of inclusion, diversity, and equity. There remains systemic racism within our institutions, within our communities, and within our workplaces, and within our governing in structures. In recognition of that sour reality, the Premier has asked me to take a lead role in working directly with each and everyone in this big room and beyond this big room to tackle racism in Newfoundland and Labrador. The work of the Ministerial Committee on Anti-Racism is well underway. Our work has been timely, it's been urgent, and has already produced positive interventions, and I look forward to continuing that momentum with people who think big. As Minister of Immigration and Multiculturalism, my work will continue to make newcomers more numerous and to feel more welcome in Newfoundland and Labrador. Inclusion begets equity. Equity begets diversity. And diversity begets more diversity. And diversity is what gives us strength. I'm committed to putting even more resources into attracting, welcoming, supporting, nurturing, and celebrating newcomers to the shores of Newfoundland and Labrador. We will do it for our own economic well-being. We will do it because newcomers increase our own standard of living. But while I say this, we must also always be aware, and I feel very personally attached to this, we must all always be aware that it is our duty of citizenship in a land as rich as Canada. We have a duty of citizenship to play an even bigger role on the world stage in providing both a sanctuary and a permanent home to those who suffer persecution, famine, or injustice. To whom much is, uh, has been given, much is expected. That is a common rule, a common rule of a just society. And so from this podium, I think the ideas of inclusion, diversity, equity, anti-racism, becoming the norm for all lives lived in Newfoundland and Labrador. It's a dream that can become a reality. And it's a dream that I borrow. I borrow it from people like, like Ladetta Cueca, who created Sharing Our Cultures years ago in an effort to reach out to children and adults alike, to bring the beauty behind diversity to us all. I borrow it from organizations like the Association for New Canadians, who brought us to a much bigger room today and we are sharing how to put the practice of making big ideas a reality as part of a common future, and it's within our grasp. I borrow it so I too can share it. There is much work ahead. Let that work begin anew. And so I offer my best wishes to a powerful day ahead, and I thank you all very, very much for the work that you do. Now let's put those ideas into practice. Thank you all very much. Thank you so much, Minister Byrne. Um, our first speaker of the day is Dr. Bolu Ajimeni, who will focus on the letter E for equity. Dr. Bolu is a medical dermatologist, clinical assistant professor, and assistant dean of social accountability in the Memorial University of Newfoundland's Faculty of Medicine.
An anti-racism advocate, he has given TEDx talks and several keynote speeches in the area of diversity and anti-racism for academic and for community-based audiences. He has published in the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, National Post, CBC, and the Huffington Post. Welcome, Dr. Bolo. All right, uh, so today I'll be talking about equity. Um, you know, equity, diversity, and inclusion, as Mr. Byrne said, are, are related, so I will be talking a little bit about uh, those concepts. So by way of introduction and objectives, I, I do think this quote by um, an advocate, a writer, a Nobel laureate, and Holocaust survivor, uh, Eli Wiesel, is very important and will kind of contextualize the, the way that we need to approach this work, right? So, so we can't be neutral. So uh, by way of introduction, so I'll give you guys a second to guess which one of these three uh, in my squad is me. Uh, so, so this is me, maybe a couple of years before I moved from Nigeria to Newfoundland and Labrador. So I'm on the right, my brother's on the left, and our cousin's in the middle. Um, so, you know, first I think you think, oh, he's a doctor. Why is he talking, you know, about this talk about diversity and, and inclusion? So uh, Virchow is a, was a pathologist, but you know, had a lot of great insight. So medicine, you know, is a social scientist, is a social science. But really, um, you know, politics and kind of improving the world is, is really part of um, our, our job as, as physicians. Uh, this is my colleague, Bob Worlard in BC. So we're both part of Canadian Doctors for Medicare. So we believe and we work on the fact that um, healthcare should be uh, related uh, to our need and not our ability to pay. So we want to protect our public health care system, which is currently um, on, on trial, right, in British Columbia right now. So the first task of the doctor is political. Struggle against disease uh, is, really, is related to bad uh, policy. So I thought that was a very cogent point uh, by philosopher Foucault. Uh, so I wrote an article, well, many articles, but I wrote an article for CBC last year. Um, so this is just um, uh, an example of some of the work we need to do outside of our uh, clinics and outside of the hospitals to kind of improve um, the lot of the populations that we serve. Because like many, you know, in medicine, it's all about uh, serving the population. So by way of objectives, I'll define equity, diversity, inclusion, I'll put them into context. Uh, I'll talk about the relationship between some of those, uh, both equity more broadly and of course health equity, and talk about some of the barriers. Uh, so in professional settings, academic settings, uh, and I'll use my own personal experience as well. And then at the end, uh, again, as Mr. Byrne said, uh, brought solutions and way forward, I'll talk about some best practices and, and some solutions, some of the work we're doing um, nationally as well. So by way of definitions, I mean, there's many different definitions. I think of diversity as a condition, right, of having um, broad experiences and broad people. But it's not just about, you know, people and, and a checkbox. It's really about perspectives, policies, and programs, and really the way we do things, whether that uh, reflects diversity. Inclusion is, is, is a bit harder. It's about not just having the people at the table, but really making sure that their voices are heard and they're in, incorporated. And equity is about fairness. So um, it's, it's, it's ongoing, right? So it, it requires really identifying what the barriers are, whether they're intentional or intentional, and working to remove those barriers. Uh, so different people start from different positions, so they need uh, different things. Uh, and health inequities are socially constructed, they're unjust, and they're, they're preventable. So I'm sure everyone here has seen some sort of variation of, of, of this image, right? There's, I've seen at least you know a dozen out there. Uh, I do like this one. So essentially, 
Uh, people have different starting points. You can see the crates on the left. Um, equality is when everyone gets the exact same thing, but equity reflects that different people need different things to have, you know, to maximize their opportunities. In this case, is watching a baseball game. Uh, and then justice is really what we can do is, is to remove the barriers, and that you know, would be the most effective. So that was kind of more broad. I'm going to uh, bring it uh, bring it local, uh, very local. So this data is from this very city uh, that that we're in. So. So this uh, uh, talks about uh, about last year, uh, the newly formed Black Students Association. They, um, you know, the very year they were for formed, we're getting letters saying, "Why are you guys here?" and linking uh, erroneous statistics for uh, linking um, being black to criminality. Um, so this is at the peak of the of the pandemic, and there was, you know, there's a lot of kind of earlier in the pandemic where there's a lot of hysteria. So. Um, as a woman uh, came here to train, doing her PhD, and she was getting, um, you know, called just being accosted regularly. Uh, this picture is, uh, uh, yeah, a picture of someone running away after they were, as you know, saying some of these things. That I don't even want to repeat. So, you know, it's present. Um, so, a couple of months ago, there was an ad on Kijiji, you know, listing criteria for uh, someone that uh, they wanted to sublet their room. So they said. Um, you know, it has to be maybe a student or has to be clean. And the very bottom is said, must be Caucasian. So I uh, took it upon myself to post on my Twitter. And uh, fortunately, Kijiji Canada saw it because it was getting some traction, as it should because it's disgusting. But it was getting some traction, and then Kijiji Canada removed the post. So uh, it's nice when that type of thing can happen, but obviously, you know, that shouldn't be my job to police this type of thing. So I actually met with uh, the federal minister of uh, housing, diversity, inclusion last week when he was in town. And then so we're discussing how in Newfoundland, Labrador, and I'm sure with many other provinces, it's housing and employment that get the most formal cases for discrimination, which makes sense because, you know, if you don't have good housing, good employment, then it's hard to, to really uh, make the most of your life. So these are important areas that we need to address. So uh, this study is interesting. It was done about six years ago on junior high and high school students uh, in St. John's, Newfoundland, Labrador. So many people uh, that you know or children of, of, of people that you know. So it's very relevant. Uh, they looked at their experiences, uh, both um, folks that are racialized and, and folks uh, that are not. So it's, you know, it's, it's good data, 850 surveys of junior high, senior high school students that were anonymous. Uh, I thought it was interesting because it kind of um, encapsulates the, what I call the out there phenomenon. So first, when they asked um, all folks whether there's racial prejudice in Canada, the vast majority of them said there was, 86%. But what about in Newfoundland and Labrador? So that reduced to 68%. So sure, it's present, but, but not in this province. But what about in this very city? Again, lower, 47%. OK, but what about at your school, 42%? So many folks think that it's sure it exists, it exists out there. But uh, when, when, it, when it comes about, is it in your actual community, then the number reduces. So I, I find that. Interesting, and it was uh, reflected in the in the data. Um, so this uh, ne next uh, few slides goes over actual racialized junior high and high school students about their personal experiences. Unfortunately, 38% of them experienced racism or discrimination at a public event, including sporting event. 40% of them, right, are, uh, had experience of discrimination for their peers, and half of them um, had racism from their school. So whether it was their peers or, or teachers or other staff at the school. So this is obviously 
um, very unfortunate because you know no school is a is a, is, is a safe place for me. You know, fortunately, my junior high and, and high school experience, well, you know, is very important, um, and it's kind of led me to get to where I am today. You know, I went to. Beaconsfield Junior High and, and Boothmore High School, but if, if other students, you know, don't have those positive experiences and can't feel safe at school, then you're not going to have, you know, you're not going to achieve some of the outcomes that we're trying to achieve, right? Um, and then we asked them wow, how folks feel in terms of being treated differently, and 46% of them um, are. So, so it is unfortunate. But besides the data, you know, there are stories uh, behind behind the numbers. So these are some of the examples, um, and I'll, I'll I'll go through them briefly. So someone said, "My mom's family is racist. At aunt's wedding to a black man, some family members refused to attend, and some even tried to stop the wedding." Uh, on the bus, there was a Pakistani man that got up, and they said he should not be allowed in our country. And not just that, but they said it loud enough so that he knew that he wasn't welcome. Um, a student was walking through the hallway, and someone gave a Hitler salute. So many different, so many different backgrounds. Uh, in, in, you know, in our very junior high and high school students in, in the city, St. John's Friend Lab, or do not feel welcome. Um, and there's more uh, data to show this. So most people witness racism at their school, right? 80, 84%. And, and that question was answered by all folks. So it was mainly non-racialized folks, of course. So going a little bit more broadly, this, this was published a couple weeks ago. It was hot off the press. And I thought it was a very interesting kind of foundation for the rest of my talk uh, about centering dignity, right? So dignity has to do with the inherent value that we each have. Uh, I like the definition in defining dignity as an actionable affirmation. So it's an affirmation every single day. We need to keep this in mind. And it's actionable. So we need to, our actions need to support, well, you know, what, when we say dignity is important, our actions need to reflect that. Um, and then it also talks about dignity violations, right? So there's lots of different ways that, that uh, indignities can occur at work. So, um, so while this is not me, uh, I did write so I wrote a paper for HuffPost a couple of years ago. But my experience, so I was working in a hospital in, in British Columbia. I was doing an overnight shift in the emergency room. So I came in around 11 p.m. Typically, you come in in, in street clothes. You take the scrubs, you go upstairs, you don't want to ch change in the emergency room, so you change in the call room upstairs, you come back and you do your shifts, right? That's, that's kind of how it goes. So I, I, so I went in, I put the scrubs in my book bag to go upstairs to, to change, to get ready for my shift. Uh, and then a woman came up and said, do you work here? What are you doing with that? Where are you taking that? So here I was just, you know, trying to, you know, trying to work, do the right thing, begin a shift, and that's how it starts. Because she was, you know, probably, and, and it's interesting because there were no black doctors that worked at the hospital, even though it was in Vancouver. So, uh, but it, it is, you know, very unfortunate that even in our workplaces, uh, bias and, and racism is very relevant. So now I'll go a little bit more broad. So this, this is a picture from uh, my wedding weekend in Vancouver. Um, so I think many folks will be familiar with, with deja vu, right? So it's when you're, you know, you're doing something for the first time. For some people, it might be your first time in this building, but it seems familiar, you know? Uh, maybe because it's at the battery, but it, it seems familiar. But I think it's also important to, to consider Vujade. So that's actually something that is familiar or routine, but you come at it with a fresh perspective. You know, one practical example, René Linnaeus uh, was a flute player. You know, we'll hear from some musicians later. We're hearing from a physician now. But he was a flute player, and then he trained in medicine. But it was only because the principles of sound amplification that he understood, understood by working uh, every day um, as a flutist, uh, as a flautist, that uh, he could use to create uh, the first stethoscope, right? 
but even uh, you know outside of those fields, pointillism is an art form where uh, this this image with the sun and the trees is made of tiny individual dots. So you know, thousands and sometimes millions of individual dots. But this art form can be um, applied into the Ishihara test for color blindness, right? So it's only when you kind of understand the different perspectives from art you can apply it to um, health sciences in this case. Uh, but even if you're not colorblind, everyone is probably benefiting from the art form, right? So pointillism as an art form was used uh, in the context uh, of pixels, right? So pixelation of our phone, as you can see, it's all individual dots. So just understanding the different perspectives, whether it's um, arts or uh, health and medicine or in technology, uh, can lead to very important products. So important, I'm sure everyone here has has. <laughs> pixels on their smartphone. So more broadly, this really speaks to the edge effect. So the edge effect gets its name because it's at the intersection of two distinct ecosystems. So whether it's the, the savanna or the boreal forest, that the greatest number of unique organisms can be found. So similarly, when people bring their different lived experiences, different perspectives together, then we know success, uh, success um, innovation can occur. So I'll talk a little bit about some other benefits of diversity. I think your cards here speak to the business case for diversity. So you know, many folks kind of, um, they, they trust a physician, they have satisfaction when either their physician resembles them in some way, or at least they see other uh, physicians and other healthcare practitioners with a similar background. Diversity is important in many learning contexts because you know assumptions that go on, um, they get squashed, they get challenged right then and there when you have folks from different diverse uh, backgrounds and can have you know counter stereotypes, right? Um, so I'll talk about it at a high level in terms of some study. So there's one study where I looked at uh, the heterogeneity of the authorship. In this in this case, it was uh, geography uh, and the ethno-linguistic uh, heterogeneity was associated with more citations uh, and being published in, in more quality research journals, right? So diversity is good for research. And this study looked at uh, the more diverse in terms of gender uh, balance led to better research uh, published in higher journals, more citations. So many different areas, diversity is good. Kind of a more a, a practical uh, reason is that folks with uh, diverse backgrounds, so folks from historically excluded backgrounds, whether it's uh, racialized folks or women, are more likely to serve, uh, you know, serve with those populations. So as I was discussing earlier, um, it's part of the reason about coming here um, you know, as an immigrant, and you know, there are various different kind of cultural, you know, some of the cultural um, ways that we did things, you know, um, in Nigeria and in the home with my Nigerian parents is different from other folks in Newfoundland and Labrador. And, and kind of understanding this um, was part of the reason why, you know, I, I, I do work with uh, refugee populations uh, and also indigenous populations, rural and remote communities talk a little bit about diversity and leadership and how we have some steps to do. So uh, many um, racial ethnic groups are reduced in diversity among uh, physicians. So black folks, Filipino folks, uh, folks from Hispanics backgrounds, Latinx folks, um, and indigenous folks are all underrepresented in medicine. But who's overrepresented are folks uh, who come from higher uh, income backgrounds. I really like this graph because uh, this is American data, but you can see the stepwise decrease, right? So blue to the green to the yellow to the red uh, is a proportion of uh, Latinx folks in the general population. It's reduced, you know, through time uh, in, in undergrad, it's further reduced in medical school, and then further reduced in competitive medical specialties. So essentially, they're, they're kind of the further you go and highly specialized, uh, you'll have uh, reduced diversity. 
again, uh, more, more uh, graphs to, to prove the point. So on the right is the lowest of these levels, assistant uh, dean, and then associate dean, vice dean, and dean, and the proportion of women is a steady decline, right? So this is a dose-response relationship for the statisticians out there. Um, of course, an exception would be our medical school. Uh, so we're one of the five medical schools to ever have uh, a woman lead the helm. Women are also underrepresented in authorship. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure Dean, Steen will, uh, Dean Steele will be happy. She's in her second term now. Um, and in policy leadership, you know, we have, you know, I met some some of the policy leaders we have here. Um, since um, I'd update this slide, because now there, there have been 40 federal health ministers since 1919. Of those 40, only nine have been women, one indigenous, one visible minority. Province of Ontario, the numbers are not much better or maybe worse. And in Quebec, it's pretty similar. So however you slice it, uh, whether it's health, academic, policy, I think you guys get the idea there's, there's reduced diversity. I like this picture because, you, you know, if you're do, you know, swimming or it's a triathlon, everyone has to do work. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're all doing work. It's just that folks from marginalized population are working against the current, right? So it's not that, you know, if, if you're swimming, everyone's doing work, but some folks just have that extra uh, thing working against them, and I'm sure many, many, many people know this better than I do. So this is not me, but it's another black youth in a restaurant. Uh, so I was applying to work in a restaurant when I was in high school, and, um, you know, I put my application in, and it was several weeks or months. I was like, oh, you know. When, you know, when are they, maybe they haven't called back yet. One of my, you know, acquaintances that I knew, I, he actually happened to work there. So I said, you know, what happened to the resume? Like, are they calling people back? Should I just, you know, keep on applying? I've already put out 40 resumes. And he said, oh, that was, oh, that was you. Yeah, I, I talked to my manager. She said, yeah, she said she saw your name there. It was like Buluwaji Okanyam. I mean, she just put it in the reject pile. So, you know, she, she said, uh, there's so many people applying. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I don't, you know, I, yeah. So she put in the reject pile. Okay, yeah, I'll tell her, yeah. And, you know, I can vouch for you. I'll tell her to, to you know, to, to consider you. So she did. She gave me a call. And I worked at that restaurant for the whole summer. It was actually a very good experience. So, so that goes to show that, you know, at many different levels, there's, there's obstacles. So I'll go uh, a bit more broadly, philosophically. I think there's two kind of extremes. Uh, of, of opinion in terms of uh, progression and we'll say admissions to professional programs. Um, some people say, you know, only merit uh, matters, right? Admission process should be blind to anything except pure excellence and quality. A uh, more social accountability point of view would have that uh, medicine, for example, since we know that uh, inequities are present in folks from rural populations, indigenous populations, uh, remote populations, uh, racialized groups, immigrants, refugees, we should. Uh, you know, have folks that have that experience. They may or may not be of that background, but they at least um, have the experience and want to work to close the gaps in those inequities. So I, in my opinion, those are two different um, sides of the spectrum. So I, again, published that in the Huffington Post a couple of years ago. The problem is that uh, there's not uh, really meritocracy, right? So these meritocracies are actually not as meritocracy meritocratic as they purport to be. Because at every single level, from recruitment to training to recommendation, evaluation, promotion, compensation, uh, things aren't fair and biases come into play. I think I've already given uh, a couple of examples and show some data to, to support that. So otherwise capable inter inter uh, people are routinely passed over. Uh, broadly, the mechanisms, whether it's culturally embedded bias, implicit and explicit, lack of mentors, uh, right, because we talked about 
you'll have fewer racialized and, uh, and other marginalized folks as you go up. So there's lack of mentorship, lack of sponsorship, which is different. Sometimes it's overt harassment and, and imposter syndrome. So those are some of the mechanisms. Um, so in, in academia, so while most medical schools in North America, actually just about all of them, have more women than men for the past five or 10 years or so. So they're getting the diversity there, but inclusion is not keeping pace, right? As we said, the higher you go up, the fewer uh, women you'll see. Over half of women uh, have documented to have discrimination in their workplace. And the number of 31% is, is, is still high, but quite a bit lower for men. I'll go very briefly through this study in Wayne State University. Um, so women's uh, reference letter compared to men, 15% shorter and twice as likely to have what they called a doubt raiser. So, they'll, so, so you know, this is a reference letter. So these are people trying to you know, get a start and progress in their fields. And I mean, this is not the type of thing you want to see, right? Uh, she has done a lot of bedside research. She's not the best student I've had. So these type of things are twice as common to have in the women, on women's references uh, than men's references. Uh, personal life appears to be stable. She's worked hard on projects, so it's not exactly a glowing, glowing recommendations. Gender and academics. So this was a study, I'll, I'll go over very briefly. Essentially, um, they had identical resumes. Some were called Brian Miller, some were called Karen Miller. The resumes were fictitious, but the people evaluating them were real members of the American Psychology Association. And they wanted to see how likely they were to be hired. So both men and women were more likely to hire a male with the identical CV, right? So, so the bias is there. So both men and both, yeah, so both, both men and women are more likely to positively evaluate the contributions, the research, community contributions. They're the exact same, but if it's done by a man, it's worth uh, is more valuable. It's done by women, it's less valuable. And you wonder why you have fewer women in leadership positions. Um, women are more likely to get cautionary comments. I mean, I mean, this one is just atrocious. We would need to see evidence that she had gotten these grants and publications on her own. Again, so most men and women hold egalitarian beliefs, and I think many of us like to think that we do the right thing and we want to do the right thing. That's not enough, right? So in terms of hiring practices, uh, so this one's interesting. Hits home, I'm sure, for many. I see many racialized folks here. The first part is about who engages in resume whitening, why are they doing it, uh, and, and what is it? So for example, they felt that Lei Zhang was more associated with um, uh, being East Asian, whereas Luke Zhang might be more associated with Asian American or Asian Canadian. Lamar James Smith um, was more associated with being black American, where L. James Smith didn't really have that connotation. So this study was actually done out of the Rotman School of Management in Toronto, but, um, but the, the data comes from, from the US. And experience whitening is important as well, right? So for example, Black Student Association might be left off altogether, um, and the Christian, Chinese Christian Fellowship might just be called the Christian Fellowship, so it doesn't uh, have that racial stigmata. Uh, so this is not me, but this is uh, similar to, to me with my resume in hand, and you know, uh, so myself and, and many other folks I know actually, actually do that, right? So we'll, we'll change uh, the name a, um, a little bit just so it doesn't seem, you know, seems more kind of fit, fitting what the, what, you know, what the, uh, the, the company wants. I already gave that example about the restaurant, right? Uh, about the name that, that they couldn't pronounce. Sometimes I'll go by Bo instead of Boluwaji. It is, it is quite unfortunate. Um, so now I'm sure some folks want to know, does that actually work, right? Does that make a difference in how you present yourself? 
So they, uh, they took 800 recent college uh, graduates. So here, the cases weren't real, but the people assessing them were real. These were real jobs in 16 diverse US cities. Everything else was the same, except uh, some uh, did resume whitening and some didn't. So the answer, as you can see, if you leave your, uh, your, your kind of your CV uh, as it is, um, you leave all the experiences on, you leave um, the, the ethnic name, if you will, callback is going to be 10, 11%. If you change your name a little bit, so Boluwaji goes to Bo, 14%. So we're more likely to call, get a callback. If, if you leave off things like the political affairs officer of Black Students Association, uh, or Muslim Students Association, et cetera, uh, or even many uh, of the organizations you're with, more likely to get called back. And if you do both, you're, even, you're over twice as likely to get called back. So that's that's, that's data, right? So we, can, we, we can't refute it. I think many of us have anecdotes, but it's nice to see the actual data. Interestingly, even for equal opportunity employers, right? So many of you have or have seen, well, let's say, we, we value diversity and we really value, the, the trend is the exact same. That's, that's not my opinion. This is, you, guys are, you guys are seeing the data. I'm just, I'm just presenting it for you. Um, so there's a hospital in, in Ontario, uh, the head of the emergency department for 16 years, not a single woman. Can you believe that? Not one. He favored male uh, it, uh, employees, made open discriminatory comments. It was kind of an open secret. But he was, you know, was bringing in $2.5 million in, in bonuses to the hospital. So obviously they had an incentive to just be quiet about it. Um, so these are some of his, his male colleagues that went on record as saying there was systemic discrimination. Many careers were severely altered and many paths. So again, as, as I said, most medical students in, in Memorial and just about every, you know, in my class, other medical students are, are women, but, you know, right? The, the inclusion uh, is, is not the same. Certainly wouldn't be hired in this hospital in, in that 16-year ban. So I know we are going to have some musical performances later, but why am I talking about the Newfoundland and Symphony Orchestra right now? So this is, uh, I'm sure many of you may know this example. In, in the 70s, many of the orchestras, 95% men, 5% women. The men just sound better. You know, we, we, just, we, we just pick who, who sounds better. The men just sound better, right? That's why it's 95% men. The key, and this is important for every single person here, the most important concept when someone said, you know what, maybe, why don't we just change our process a little bit? The thing is, you need to change your processes. It, it takes humility, but you need to change your process. And they say, why don't, I mean, if we want, if symphony has to sound good, why don't we just do it blind, right? It doesn't matter how they look, it just matters how they sound, right? So let's do that. Guess what happened? Overnight, 5% women went to 30, 25, 30, 33% women. Did the women get better overnight? Or was there bias the whole time? So what can we learn from this? So implicit bias is, is, is ubiquitous, is, is everywhere around us. We get millions and millions of input uh, every day and we, uh, we factor that into our decisions and what we do and what we do not do. Uh, the key is that we must seek ways to eliminate bias, right? So that's a practical example. So the key was to just do blind, blind auditions. It makes for a fair process and a more beautiful symphony, both uh, literally and metaphorically. So again, uh, men and women, men, men, I should say um, uh, men, women, and, and gender non-binary folks uh, hold egalitarian beliefs, but those beliefs alone don't guarantee a partial evaluation of others, right? Uh, okay, so where do you go from here? So the rest of the talk uh, will be about um, kind of way forwards. Um, so I chose this photo in, in particular because, you know, I think 
we kind of romanticize the image of Martin Luther King and obviously the great uh, work he's done. He has his own holiday uh, in the US, but at the time, uh, most people didn't like him, right? And so he went to jail, he was, he, was, he was beaten up, he was punched, he was kicked, and ultimately he was assassinated because this work is hard and not everyone's gonna be on, on board. You're kind of asking people to change the way they do things for the better. So the work is hard, and many of the folks that do the work uh, have enormous uh, personal sacrifices. So collecting data, I went through some. So data can create a clear way for it to keep systems accountable, right? So, so you have to track it. It's not a solution, but it's important on the path to change. Um, you know, Canada might, you know, is very polite. We have a colorblind approach, but the problem uh, is that if we're not uh, collecting data on inequities, we can't fix them, right? So one benefit of the pandemic was that we, um, so some of my colleagues on the mainland made a big push to collect race-based data. And we'll see the result of some of that um, coming up. So again, with data, so folks um, from um, areas with lower incomes more likely to have COVID. This is um, data from the Toronto Star. Again, uh, folks with higher incomes, over 100,000, less likely to have COVID. Folks with many members of the communities that identified as Black, more likely to have high rates of COVID-19. Um, so data creates a clear way to keep symptoms accountable, right? So that data can be graphed over time to see if what we're doing actually results in improved outcomes. Um, and so the black, uh, black Health Vaccine Initiative done by some of my colleagues uh, uh, as part of the Black Physician Association of Ontario, and, and part of that involves getting the, uh, the black doctors to, to communicate, to be the ones, you know, giving folks a jab, and to really understand where people are coming from in terms of vaccine hesitancy. Um, other uh, indigenous communities also have lower rates. So we really need to understand where they're coming from, do the work, go, go in the community. So these are perspectives that are important. So this is a, a TEDx talk. In terms of inclusive workplaces, very, very inclusive um, experience I had with TEDx a few years ago. But these, these are just some, some, some practical tips. Um, in terms, so you certainly want to increase representation of women and gender non-binary folks in, in leadership want to use in, inclusive pronouns. Um, again, anonymous evaluation when you can, which is, is the parallel, right, of evaluating um, musicians behind a screen. Um, and in, in, I, I spoke about employee engagement surveys, which can also be important. The other thing is just to legitimize this work, right? So the work we do, whether it's, it's speaking or, or outreach or, or whatever it is, you need to le legitimize it, give folks credit for it, and of course, you know, pay folks for, for, for doing the work because it is real important work and it, it improves our organizations uh, and, and improves our province. And policy is important, right? So I want to just keep it local. So Memorial, you know, has done a lot of work recently. Our internalization plan, um, strategic framework for um, indigenization, trans and gender diverse students guide. Uh, and more recently, we're a signature on the Scarborough Charter for um, anti-black racism and black inclusion. So that was about a week ago or so. Um, so, you know, we're doing some work here. And again, you know, a lot of the time change has to come from the top, right? So uh, vice president, indigenous vice Provost Equity, Diversity, Inclusion. Um, so I've you know interacted with both of them, and um, you know it's important to have folks in the senior leadership positions because it shows that's really a priority for the university. And similarly, this is uh, on a provincial level, this is reflected, and national level reflected in the portfolio name and the portfolio work of the ministers who do a lot of this work. Uh, I'll just go briefly through this. So we're essentially we're working on um, changing accreditation standards for medical specialists in Canada by having an anti-black racism lens and an anti-indigenous racism lens. 
so we're, I, I won't go through some of the some of the work that we're doing, but essentially we're uh, ensuring that specific anti-racism policies are present, adhered to, uh, specific reporting mechanisms are there. Because again, um, it's not it's it's not enough to highlight it. You need to make uh, folks accountable by having these policies in place. A racial equity impact assessment, essentially any policy that you're proposing, you want to have it assessed by, by racial equity lens. Because it's not just the um, outcomes we can see, but there's often unanticipated adverse effects that can happen. Uh, diversifying leadership. So where do we go from here? Um, I'll go through this just briefly. So there's many programs, whether it's in terms of increasing diversity in socioeconomic background of medical students um, or um, ethnic backgrounds. U of T, they had in 2021 black student out of you know over 200. Uh, they had a black student application program involved where they involved black faculty and now it's up to 24. So a significant increase. Uh, I've been part of the uh, community of support program uh, at the U of T. So we um, focus on increasing diversity in terms of indigenous folks in medical school, black, Filipino, uh, folks from lower socioeconomic status and folks who have a disability. So whether it's mentoring, uh, speaking, giving tips, teaching the MCAT, there's lots of different ways to uh, get uh, some of those folks involved e even when they're at the high school level, right? Because those are the leaders of tomorrow. Um, and, and, and similarly, we have focus, uh, areas focused on indigenous students and rural communities, which you know, Memorial has really been a champion on. North Ontario School of Medicine was created mainly just to increase rural physicians. Uh, we need to include equity, justice, anti-racism, decolonization throughout the curriculum. So you know, learners need to learn this kind of early and often. Some schools have you know, entire, lots of resources dedicated towards this. What gets measured gets done, right? So you need to uh, collect data, set goals, uh, reassess, the, reassess the goals, see how close you are to success, find out what the barriers are. Um, so I'll talk very uh, briefly. So I think institutions are not ahistorical. So whether it's um, a university or, or as a medical school, right? The institutions reflect and perpetuate dominant societal stereotypes. Um, and you know, many benefit from uh, both in the past and the present um, racist and colonial practices. And that's why it's all of our duty to, to correct this by taking action. Language matters, right? So uh, we're not just equity seeking groups, uh, equity deserving groups, because everyone deserves equity. Uh, underrepresented only tells part of the stories. Uh, the reason uh, there's fewer black folks in, in, uh, in uh, medical school and physicians, uh, for example, Queen's University didn't admit black people for, for a number of decades. So it's hard to have people in leadership when you're not allowed to apply to medical school uh, based on the color of your skin. Uh, and so anti-racist is more important than being racist, right? Because if you're just not participating, you're, you're letting uh, these biases and these systemic structures continue and uh, pronouns, not preferred pronouns, right? So I, I prefer coffee to tea, but in a pinch, I'll of tea, right? So uh, that's that's a preference, but they're pronouns because these are how people identify. Intersectionality is important um, because it's you know, many folks have many different categorizations, right? We have many folks that are, you might you know you have different uh, categorizations in terms of marginalization, and unfortunately, they have overlapping and compounding um, uh, effects of discrimination. Uh, very briefly, cognitive diversity, I think it's an interesting uh, way to consider things. So not just kind of having a checkbox of, oh, we got our, you know, we got our gay person and we got our black person. It's about the diversity and the experience that these backgrounds bring, right? So 
the it's about so that's what cognitive diversity speaks about different uh, ways of seeing the world different ways of problem solving different insights uh, can you know can all occur are we taking questions at the end okay. or probably behind okay. yes. oh no you can uh, take questions now oh i'm taking okay does anyone have any <laughs> for dr Bobo? questions comments um when we were talking about uh, I think the word you used was whitening resumes and whatnot. What can I and folks like me who are often in positions of hiring, um, what, is it, what is our analogy to putting the screen in with the symphony? You know, are there simple things that we can do, such as even just striking names from resumes as they come in to assist ourselves in removing, or sorry, not removing, but... Um, avoiding our own biases because we know they exist yeah it's a good question it, it's it's complex you know i, I think um so, sometimes folks want you know like you know for me a lot of the work i've done with whether it's uh, immigrant nigerian black communities is is part of my story so i'm proud now proud to put it on, on my resume um and, and sometimes it's, rel it's it's less relevant i i think that though in general so some best practices to reduce the the bias that comes would would be um, when like on, on hiring committees um, just use a you should say there instead of kind of he or he or she um, in general for example you know if we talk about um, you know he, you know she took a year off and they say oh it's probably taking care of a child we say he took a year off oh he may have been doing some extra training right so if we just eliminate it then you know then people can't. Uh, make those those associations w when possible um one concept that's um one of the medical organizations does they actually have so kind of with um um it's, it's more at the at the board or hiring table level um they'll have someone who's uh you know when they're because at some point you, you know you need to discuss the the, the candidates what they'll do is they will um have one person who's on the board who has the who has power just like everyone else, but their job is to kind of be the whip to kind of say, "Hey, would you have said that this person had this background?" So I think that's an interesting model. One thing that they do, um, the Canadian Association, the um, anyway, the, the residency matching service, which I I think is useful because we talk. I mean, it's, it's very broad. You know, one I didn't talk about today is, is size and weight based and other appearance bias that we have. So what they do is you you know you have your your resume, but the the picture isn't linked until the next step. So, so you have you might have hundred people apply. Then you choose I don't know twenty to interview, but you don't see their picture until you've chosen the, the twenty, right? So that's important because the earlier you choose the picture, that's going to bias who you're going to choose the interview. So there's lots of different kind of ways ways to to consider it. In general, there should be diversity among the folks that are making hiring decisions, right? Because they bring different perspectives that can they can kind of uh, you know, balance things out. So those are a few best practices. Sometimes it's, it's, uh, you can't, you can't, uh, often, you know, it's not practical to, as you mentioned, have the screen, but those are some ideas that can kind of, uh, mitigate it. And so, you know, and sometimes it, you know, you, sh you shouldn't have the screen because like I said, sometimes people, not only they're proud of their experiences, but they're, they're, they're relevant as well. Um, even though they do serve as stigmata of, you know, of their e ethnic background. Good question. Uh, I know that in the province we're having a, we're having a lot of people coming into the province for employment, and they're racialized folks. I just wondered, like for employers, uh, what is their responsibility or their role? Like our our friend just explained about work. 
and the work environment. I mean, it's one thing to open up access, but then there's another thing about creating the condition or the environment for people to thrive in. And I think the accountability piece is, is part of that. So what could we do in our workplaces and, uh, you know, for people in leadership roles in workplace, what can they do to kind of uh, encourage and uh, help people understand how this systemic discrimination works? So the question is to understand, um, to help other maybe more senior people to understand how it's, how it's going on at work. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, that situation is, is, is tough without kind of the, we'll say the, the, the human, formal human resources legal background. Um, it's, yeah, it, it, it is tough. One idea that, uh, you know, I think may be relevant uh, here is the idea. Well, I mean, certainly the key is to have structures in place, whether it's you know, reporting, whistleblowing, structures in place is important. Uh, many folks, is it, yeah, so many folks will, will, will document, right? So many folks will email instead of texting or, or doing a phone call because then you can document that, um, you know, this is why they're, you know, they're not responding to me or e either way they're uh, treating me in a different way for, for some reason. So documentation is important and that can support uh, the person who's being discriminated against, even though they're in a more vulnerable p position. So I think that would be important. Um, there are some other some other I ideas. I, I think sponsorship is important. I, I talked about it only very briefly, but having a senior person, it's even from, from mentorship, because sponsorship, the person is relatively senior and can kind of support folks uh, up from, from different backgrounds. The senior person will have influence and kind of power within the organization. So having formal sponsorship, um, kind of a connection or organization um, within the organization would be another, uh, another idea. So not just mentorship, but actual kind of sponsorship. So, so the person that you go to actually has some, uh, some power and some clout. Um, yeah, those would be some ideas. I mean, yeah, yeah, those would be some. Okay. Um, I just wanted to piggyback okay. on the question that was asked earlier about the race, um, perhaps based conflict. And I think it's important in the workplace. I'm a teacher and um, my students learn a lot about being an upstander and really understanding that dynamic that exists within our spaces and the power that we have. And if we can be anti-racist and we can be allies, then if we are not a racialized person, then we have the responsibility in the workplace to make an issue of that as well. So it's not always the person who's fighting on their behalf constantly because that's incredibly tiresome and burdensome, but also the understanding um, that that we all see the world differently and that we have different experiences based on culture and race and that if somebody says that there is an issue, then there is an issue and that that is wholly, fully believed to be that issue and the importance of that. So just to piggyback on that idea, I think we can all stand up as well and definitely have policies in place. But until those policies come to fruition, um, hopefully quickly, then we also have a responsibility, I think, in our workplace. And then the training piece for all employees is a huge part of that. Um, you said an important part was obviously that data is irrefutable and we need data to make that change. Um, but obviously we've seen in the presentation that it's like always separated into men and women. Um, and we know by now that obviously gender exists beyond that. 
Have you seen, um, this is just like a personal to me, my partner's agender, so I see this all the time um, in our lives. Um, have you seen in your experience in the medical field or beyond that, th is that starting to change? Like, are we, are we including more gender nonconforming or, or non-binary agender people in statistics? Or how do you think, how do you think that's going to change in the future? Like, yeah, it's a great question. Um, I would say we're, we're slower to change, um, uh, unfortunately. I actually, I went to a talk a couple of weeks ago, uh, Marnie Parnas is a, uh, advocate in, in Edmonton with Alberta Health Services. Um, so there, there is a, a you know a little bit of work, and that you know that talk was well, 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 was well received. But we're yeah a, a little bit slower. You know we're, I think we're at the point where a lot of um, you know EMR electro, uh, electronic medical records health systems are you know they're getting beyond the binary right. It's not just uh, male female which is good. Uh, so um, they, yeah, uh, but we're still not at the point where we are. So, so technically, I suppose we could collect the data because we're actually sorting them, but we're not. Yeah, we're not at the point where we have you know, the data and the studies. And I, I think that's the type of thing where we, we need to even develop a field of ethics to see how how we can and, and should use that data, right? So, bottom line is, it has been uh, it, it, it's being considered. It's in its infancy. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I would hope over the next little while that we can actually. Yeah, get to the point where we're seeing, you know, and that's the thing, intersectionality, it's, it's more broad than just, you know, black and white or men, or men and women. And I, I agree that we need to include, because, you know, if we don't have them in the data, then we can't, uh, you know, then it's harder to say that, you know, this is what we need to improve, right? I, I agree. So I, I, I think I think there is a little bit of work being done there uh, out, out west, and hopefully uh, by the time someone else gives this talk, they'll have more important data to show. Thank you so much. I'm sure that uh, you've all learned a lot uh, from uh, Dr. Bolo's um, uh, presentation. I certainly did. There's a few things that I didn't know. Um, it's weird because when he mentioned the resume whitening, my name is Barb Walsh, so it's very Caucasian. So usually since I've been in Newfoundland, I've gotten on the phone, maybe I'm related to you because my last day, I'm like, maybe. But <laughs> But you know how it goes. Um, so again, <laughs> thank you to Dr. Bolo uh, for taking the time to be here with us this morning and for his insightful presentation. Um, so we'll now take a short break to refill your beverages and have a snack. I wanted to uh, give a shout out to Team Grow NL for being our breakfast sponsor. And we cannot underestimate the value that coffee and calories bring to the conference day. So thank you again, Team Grow NL. Thank you, everyone.